Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Bridgewater. We're glad you're here. My name is Matt, and uh, for a couple more weeks, I have the joy of being your campus pastor here uh, at Bridgewater. If you're new with us, uh, you may have missed the announcement last week. Um, I, my wife and I are transitioning in a couple weeks, um, but for now, we get to have some really fun conversations together. Uh, and by fun, I mean incredibly difficult and tricky and complicated uh, in the last couple of weeks here. And so if you've missed any of this series, uh, it's called Mirror Images, Broken Reflections of a Perfect God. And uh, every week is built upon the last. So if you've missed weeks one and two and you're just jumping in here in week three, uh, I have a homework assignment for you today. Go on to bridgewater.com or bridgewater.church slash messages and listen to one and two. And then probably re-listen to the one from today uh, in case you missed the other ones. Because everything I'm saying today is really built upon the arguments uh, that I made in the first two weeks. And uh, one of the things we're really looking at is how do we navigate some of the most complicated uh, issues in our day and in our, our culture and our climate. And, and how are we supposed to approach them as Christians? And what type of uh, thoughts should we have? And what we said was the reason you had to come every single week was because we can't answer every question every week. And even if we uh, tried that, we would we would never get there. However, I wanted to make you aware on our website, going through the slide up there, we've created a resource page for you. Uh, so you can take your phones, pull out your camera app, and scan this QR code here, and it'll take you right to a page on our website. Uh, it'll be, you can also find this under bridgewater.church slash mirrors at a later date. Um, and for every week, there's additional resources to help you go further in the conversation, uh, to help us to continue to be learners, which is one of the four commitments I've asked of us at the beginning of this series that we would stick to. So let's go ahead and uh, just review those because today is going to require us uh, to do this probably more than any day, to be learners, not judges. So as we navigate this conversation today, that we would all sit in a posture of humility and learning before we respond, that we would develop a burden for people who sin or struggle differently uh, than we might to encourage our posture to be that of compassion for people rather than disdain, and ultimately to equip us to engage in others' lives. So those are the four commitments. The other commitment was to come every week. You're back again this week, so I appreciate uh, your commitment to that. At the end of week one, I, I gave you four application questions, and I want to review those because those questions were really a setup for uh, what I knew was coming this week, and the questions were this. Uh, is your worldview filtered through the Bible, or is your worldview filtering the Bible? Primarily what I mean by that question is when you view life and morality and ethics and politics, uh, are those decisions and viewpoints filtered by an understanding of God's word, or do you read God's word through a lens of predetermined cultural opinions you already heard that determine whether you believe the Bible to be true or not, right? The posture and position we are sitting in is that God's word is authority and we must view really important decisions through the filter of God's word. And today is going to be one of those days. Is your testimony towards outsiders helpful to them coming to faith in Jesus, particularly how we navigate this conversation today? Is it helpful? Are your conversations full of grace and anchored in truth? And I would say for wherever you land on our topic today, that this would also be true for us. And then are you appropriately prepared to give answers for your beliefs? Just because isn't an answer that works to help people find truth. We must be able to give accurate and appropriate answers to the questions that the world is asking. Okay, we good? All right. So this week uh, we are jumping into a big topic and uh, we're really looking at kind of the broader picture of sexual identity, but particularly in regards to how the Christian and the, the biblical follower of Jesus is to approach the conversation around transgenderism. Um, so to get us started, I actually want to read to you a definition because we need to be learners uh, on this conversation. Uh, if you are a reader or not a reader, 
Uh, it doesn't matter because I'd highly recommend this book either way. The book is called Embodied by Preston Sprinkle. Um, we'll have a few copies uh, for sale back out of the Welcome Center. You can get it on Amazon. Embodied by Preston Sprinkle. He's a Christian. He has done tons of research um, from secular psychologists and secular scientists to Christian psychologists. He's just done an incredible work to help uh, frame up and understand the topic. And so we as a staff actually, long before we, uh, well, we had already committed to preach this series, but we as a staff went through this book uh, and have navigated all of these conversations ourselves um, so that we were ourselves were ready to give answers to you as you navigate them yourself. So here's, here's the definition of transgender according to uh, what he has written in the book, Embodied. It is an umbrella term for many for the many ways in which people might experience and or present or express or live out their gender identities differently from people whose sense of gender identity is congruent with their biological sex. And this was a piece of learning for me, and I didn't know this. I didn't know until recently that both the trans community and the larger LGBTQ plus community, when they use the word transgender, I assumed, out of my ignorance, that that meant a transitioned individual every time. That is not true. The word transgender does not mean a transitioned individual every single time. It might mean somebody who is in transition, who's considering transition, somebody who is wrestling with but not acting on gender dysphoria, somebody who is wrestling with gender dysphoria and acting upon it, or somebody who simply doesn't feel comfortable in their own skin will use this as kind of an umbrella term. And so as we approach this conversation and you're having a conversation with an individual, he says this in the book repeatedly and it was really helpful, when you've met one trans person, you've met one trans person. That we would not, uh, in our short-sightedness, begin to apply labels to people that are not accurate, that we would begin to ask questions and seek to understand what it is that they actually mean when they use the words that they mean. Uh, I, I would imagine so many of our cultural issues that are so feisty and, and di divided in our culture would not be so if we would slow down and ask questions. Hey, when you say this, what do you mean by this? Because I understand that term to mean this. And they would go, oh, no, that's not at all what I mean by that term. Oh, which is why it's so important that we would be learners, not judges. When I talk about this, I'm sure this immediately creates a divide in the room. Uh, for some of you, there's probably this, this divide of I can't even wrap my mind around this. I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense to me. And yet on the other side of the room, there's individuals potentially in this room here even today, wrestling with these very things, perhaps uh, fighting against them, perhaps acting on them, or that you have a loved one who is walking through this. And so as we navigate this conversation today, my heart and hope is that both would hear the gospel of Jesus to be significant enough to influence the way we think, act, behave, and believe about these things, and that it's through all of it we would all walk in love. So that before we would get to anything that we would commit to learn before we respond. And so I'm going to need you to nerd out with me a little bit this morning. Can we do that? You nerd out with me a little bit? We're going to go on a little bit of a journey here because one of the things we have to do in order to understand the cultural world and conversation that we find ourselves in, we have to find out how we got here. Because we didn't get here as a culture just accidentally, and it didn't happen overnight. But right now in this culture, particularly with Gen Z, ages 9 to 24, it is the biggest shift we've seen in cultural thinking for as far as we've been paying attention. And so uh, this shift is significant, and we need to talk about it because it's really what got us to the point that we're having this conversation in the first place. And so uh, I'm going to kind of lay it out in three categories for you this morning. The first is going to be the old world. I'm going to throw it up here. The old world, 
which is not that old. This is up until pretty much uh, my generation, really, is kind of when this started to shift. Uh, and then the New World, which would be basically the, the pattern of thinking that is prevalent in today's society. Largely, it is a Western uh, civilization conversation, but it's becoming a global conversation. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. And then the gray area. And what I mean by the gray area is not that we're unclear on it, but that our culture is incredibly unclear on these things. And these particular things have come as a result of shifting the way we think about our moral architect as a culture and society that has led to some decisions. So that's kind of the overview. Let's put our nerd hats on and let's get jumping in here. So the, uh, the kind of first piece of framework underneath the old world way of thinking was just traditional morality. So this was true whether you were in Christianity or whether you were in another society, that there was cultural traditions that existed around the way we determined and decided what morality was. There was cultural beliefs about what was right and wrong. You go even into countries where Christianity is not present. Whether we agree with those morality or not is not the point. There was a set of standards that, they, that people groups held. We do not do this because we are this. We do not do this because we are this. There was uh, a belief really around morality that was determined by the larger category. Well, that foundation to society of truth and the, the truth, right? Even you go into Muslim societies, you go into Buddhist societies, Hinduistic societies, they had a sense of guiding morality that they all submitted to and believed in that has gone the wayside in the new world of thinking. In the new world of thinking, we really have embraced subjective truth, right? So this term, your truth is my truth, my, my truth, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. What that is, is not just a cute statement to not have to have hard conversations. It's a pivotal shift in how we think about truth. Because no longer does society determine, or, or larger groups of society or culture determine what is true and what are our anchor points. I, as the individual, am not free to begin to make those types of decisions on my own. It is subjective. I'm no longer, and this is a big piece of it, I'm no longer, in this new line of thinking, accountable for the truth I hold, regardless of the ramifications. Does that make sense? which then leads to uh, this kind of gray area, which is our, our, another one here, of morality really became subjective. So when truth, which is our guiding post of morality, becomes subjective, uh, morality itself becomes a shifting sand. That not only, since I get to determine what I want to do and when I want to do it, uh, nobody really can call me out on my behavior and the ramifications it has on other people. Right? So uh, one of the big pieces of, of Eastern culture really is that the community has this shame-honor context in which if I do something, it's going to bring shame on my family, and that is the worst type of punishment possible. So I'm not going to do that even if I want to because I don't want to bring shame on my family. So there was a boundary of the, the culture creating and holding this truth that has gone to the wayside, and now I'm free to make whatever decision I want, regardless of the ramifications, and nobody can tell me otherwise because nobody holds truth anymore. You see that shift? Okay, uh, which leads us to the next piece. We kind of talked about this a little bit, but community, tradition, and religion really guided us in our decision-making process, uh, and that's just not true. That has uh, given way, by and large, in Western society, particularly in America, to this idea called expressive individualism. 
expressive individuals, and I'll define it for you, holds that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if it is individually to be, if individuality is to be realized. In other words, no longer does the community and tradition and religion and family define who I am. I have the right to define who I am. And at its core, what it really is saying is that the desires and feelings and ambitions that I have inside of me, I have a right and, and also an obligation to live to the truest sense of what I feel inside, okay? So whatever I feel, I must express in the outer world or I'm being inauthentic, right? You hear this in the, these cute phrases of, I'm just being my truest self. Well, underneath that is a belief that if I do not express everything I am as an individual, I'm being inauthentic and dishonest, which is like a curse to Gen Z to not be authentic and honest. The danger in that is that with it comes the predetermined position that you have to support whatever it is that I express myself as. Okay? If you don't, you're not just attacking my decision, you're attacking who I am as a person. One of the things expressive individualism has done, it is connected the decisions we make to my identity. So if you attack my decisions, you are attacking the very person of who I am, which is why this conversation around transgenderism is such a hotly debated topic, because when we're talking about issues of transgenderism, it is a, a conversation about identity of the individual. And those are hard to not take personal, which is why we must navigate this with wisdom. One of the reasons or one of the things that expressive individualism has really catapulted us into, whether we like it or not, is this overemphasis on sex. And here's why. There's little to no desire in the human body that is stronger than the sexual drive. And so if an expressive individualism says, I must express my inner desires, that inner desires most often is sexual desires. And so as a culture, this happened long before Gen Z, so don't blame Gen Z for this one. Um, long before Gen Z, whatever I felt sexually, I was free to do, whether that was with a different partner, not my wife. Whatever expression of that took place, I had to do it because it's what was in here that led to an overemphasis on sex. Uh, and I want to read some statistics to you because it's, it's alarming uh, how prevalent it is in our culture, and I don't know if we realize it. 80% of television shows contain sexual content. One third of uh, total daily searches on porn sites are searching for teenagers in the search bars. Porn sales bring in more revenue every year than the MLB, NFL, and NBA combined. And I know Steph Curry makes 51 million a year himself. It's a lot of money. 75% of porn sites are free. 85% of young men and nearly 50% of all women watch porn on a regular basis. The U.S. is the largest producer and exporter of porn worldwide. It's everywhere in our culture. I read in another study as well that it was something around 75% of the time that a young girl is portrayed in a TV show. She's 75% more likely to be revealed or showed in a sexual manner than anybody else on the show. You can't tell me this is accidental. You can't tell me the overexposure to sexuality is accidental, and you cannot tell me the overexposure of young girls is accidental. It is not. It is coming from some root of evil. Here's the other big shift that took place. While traditional morality was held, and it was held in the community, 
almost every culture up until recently held that a higher power was responsible for some sort of component of morality. So even Allah has a level of power and influence and authority in morality. Whether you agree with that morality or not is irrelevant. It is a higher power. You see it with Buddha. You see it with all the the pantheon of gods of, of Hinduism across all of society for as long as we can look back. Really, the higher power existed and the higher power guided us. Well, when you scrap these two things and you create subjective truth and nobody else holds truth and I'm allowed to express myself and that is really the most authentic thing I can do, it really results in me as power. Not only do I get to decide truth, I'm now free to express myself, I ultimately now hold all authority. You hear this in the phrase, nobody can tell me what to do with my body or with myself or with my identity. That happened because we gave up the foundation and rootedness of God as the source of life and the Bible as the authority of life. Those are the first two points of our first sermon. Because we culturally don't hold those two points, we now have naturally given ourselves over for us to decide and be the final authority on our lives, which has resulted in this big conversation, really, that we're having because of being an over-sexualized culture, now we have this overemphasis on sex and gender. Here's one of the pieces that I had to learn as I went through this process. Um, for, for all of my life, up until about uh, three months ago, uh, I thought sex and gender were synonymous terms. They were interchangeable and they meant the same thing. What I've learned through this process is that that is not the cultural definition of those words anymore. Sex and gender have become divided and distinct words. And here's what I mean. Sex is, refers to the biological reality of the person's anatomy Gender now refers to the expression of that said feeling, okay? So when somebody says, my gender is this, now in today's culture, when they're saying that, they're not saying necessarily that my biological reality is this. They're saying, based on my expressive individualism and what I feel on the inside, I now feel my gender to actually be this, Okay? And so those are important distinctions because you're having the conversation and you're trying to navigate how you have the conversation around looking at somebody who is um, walking in a different set of skin than they, they look like they ought to be. It's because they've made the distinction between sex and gender. Sex and gender are closely tied to this last piece, and this is important, then we'll move on and we'll stop nerding out. For all of human history... These three things of traditional morality, the community, and a higher power gave us identity. They defined who we were. So this is what we talked about last week, that God in the creation narrative spoke uh, life. He breathed life into Adam and Eve. He put the image on Adam and Eve. Identity was given as children of God. It was not something you had to go looking for. It was given. It was given. Identity is given by the family. It is defined by given. My identity as Matt was given to me as a son of Mark and Diane. Well, that has also gone to the wayside. Now, identity is not something that is given. It is something ultimately that we feel like, and you'll hear this in our cultural conversations, I have to find my true self. I have to find who I am. I have to find out who really, who Matt really is, and it becomes the self-defined idea in which I get to determine who I am and who I'm not, which is incredibly dangerous because uh, how you view yourself shifts and changes all the time and how others view you shifts and changes all the time. They are not the fixed points we need to determine something as essential as our identity, but what has happened because 
we've given up all these other key points. We've given up identity being given by God and has resulted really in this situation of gender dysphoria and transgenderism. So that's how we got here. Now here's what I want to say in grace and kindness to anybody who's wrestling. And, and I want to say this for the older generation who perhaps has a hard time listening to, hearing, or responding to Gen Z. Gen Z didn't ask for this culture. These ideas weren't pushed on them. It was my generation and up that is responsible for this shift. Our eight-year-olds did not rewrite cultural understanding of subjective truth and morality. We did. And now they're living with the world that we as a culture and our generation have created. And so let's, as we navigate these conversations, let's understand the immense pressure our kids and teenagers are under because this is what they're being taught. These become natural understandings if this is what they're being taught, which is why we as followers of Jesus must with grace and truth, hold to these positions because these are ultimately what lead to God's good and right design. I want to read for you a quote by a man. He is, uh, his name is Christopher, or, uh, yeah, Christopher Yuan. He identifies as a um, straight man. However, uh, he is very open that for most of his life he has wrestled with same-sex attraction. He chooses to not act on that. And here is part of his reasoning for why he does not do that. We know that we are created in God's image, thus rejecting our inherent essence and replacing it with simply what we feel or do is in reality an attempted coup d'etat against the creator. We do not need to find our identity. Our identity is given by God. His point is uh, simply what we just said, that we don't, get to de- we don't get to call these shots. They are not for us to decide. It is for God as our maker to make these decisions. Now, why am I making such a big deal about this conversation, about our, our worldview and all that? Th- this is why. Because the flawed view, uh, the problem is that a flawed view of who I am results in a flawed personal ethic. If I don't see who I am in my identity, created, given by God, in the image of God, if I do not see those, I will disregard what it is that God says about my design. And if we are not seeing ourselves rightly as God's creation, we will begin to make decisions as if we are the creator, as if we have the authority to make these decisions, and we simply do not in the reality of the world in which God has created. So that is kind of how we got here. Now I want to talk about where we go from here. Where we go from here is to God's word to unpack and see what it is that God has given to us in design. Genesis chapter 1. Uh, go ahead and turn there with me if you have your Bibles. Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we said we'd, we'd be there this whole series. I've read some of this to you already. We're going to read it again because it has uh, incredible implications for us. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that we may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. What do we see here? We see that God in his creation of people intentionally and exclusively designed male and female. 
This is one of the most unpopular statements you could make in our culture today, and yet it is written for us plainly in the Word of God that God with intention created Adam to be distinct and different than Eve, that gender is a difference and is significant. It is not a social construct. It is given by God that God created uh, Eve with intention and exclusive design, and that when he did that, he did it on purpose for a purpose, and it was not a mistake. One of the arguments you'll hear against uh, a trans or a trans individual will make against Christianity against God is, well, why did God make me this way? And the answer is God did not make you to have that wrestle. Sin ultimately brought those wrestles into our lives, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But when God created us, he created male and female with distinction on purpose for a purpose, and that is it. We do not need to talk long about that because Scripture makes it so plain to us. One of the other arguments you'll hear is that, well, that's the Old Testament and that's the old mean God, but I know Jesus and the Jesus I know would be totally fine with that because he's love and love is love. Well, that's not based on scripture. And here's how I know that. Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, listen to the words of Jesus himself. This is Jesus speaking. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Colossians also tells us that all of creation was made in him and through him and for him. John 1.1 that we read at the beginning of week one was that Jesus was present at creation. So Jesus, present at creation, saw God's intention and design and purpose, was present, was involved, creation was through him, and here he is thousands of years later standing in front of people, saying the same thing again, that God intentionally and exclusively designed them male and female. So if you want to say Jesus is good with it, you have to ignore God's word. Because Jesus is explicitly clear, male and female, he created them. And here's the other piece that we're not talking about as a society. Science agrees. This is information that Preston put in his book, but it came from secular atheistic scientists as they defined sexuality. A person is biologically male and female based on four things. The presence or absence of a Y chromosome, the internal reproductive organs, the external sexual anatomy, and the endocrine systems that produce secondary sex characteristics like uh, testosterone and estrogen. So both God in creation, Jesus in his affirmation, and science in its affirmation uh, stand with Scripture. And one of the things you'll find is that science and certain scientists like to bend information to, to disregard God's word. But the honest scientist is going to always eventually line up with God's word because it is God as the source of life who created the things the scientists are studying. Science also affirms male and female. And here's where we need to have an honest conversation of splitting hairs. To be fair, there are some individuals who are acting in uh, defiance of their God-given sexuality in direct defiance to God. There are some. And yet there are many, perhaps many more individuals who find in their inner being a wrestle they did not ask for, a wrestle they did not invite, and some of them a wrestle they do not want because something has gone wrong in them. And so before we throw stones, let us begin to ask questions of individuals wrestling with this because uh, we see clearly through God's word and science that there is this reality. And yet for many, gender dysphoria is a very real and painful reality. It is a difficult one that they live with. It is not one that they ask for. And we need to be a place that offers hope and help for them as they navigate it.
Here's what we see in God's design. As God walked through creation, every piece of creation he called good when it was done. There was one piece of creation he called very good. Genesis chapter 1 verse 31 said this, and God saw all that he made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning and it was the sixth day, which leads us to our second main point, that honoring God's design leads to flourishing. That when God created the world, he made the male and female, he designed them to live together. And in fact, creation continues as a result of male and female coming together in unity to procreate and continue life. Like from a practical sense, male and female together is the only way society continues to operate because it is the only way humanity is created. And so there's that practical sense. But also as we live in God's good and right design, his blessings have been given to us. And he said he will honor us in that and give us the life we ultimately desire. There is flourishing for that. But what happened? Because here's where the question comes. Well, if I have these, if God is good and he created me, why do I have these desires? We have these desires because from the very beginning of time, man was unwilling to see themselves rightly before God, which created a problem in their personal ethic. Genesis chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there with me. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. This is we don't know the time that passed from the end of creation to this moment, but it's one chapter in the Bible, if that gives you any indication. <clears throat> the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. We're going to pause right there. What has happened at this point is uh, Adam and Eve were given specific instructions to not eat of the tree of life. Uh, God gave them uh, ability to have whatever they wanted throughout the garden. He said, except this one thing. It was a test. Would they be willing to submit and follow God's laws in, in order to honor him or would they choose their own way? What happened was the, the serpent came up. Satan tempted Eve. And it's interesting as you read this for yourselves, and I encourage you to do it later. He tempts Eve with a couple things that we talked about this morning. Is that really what God said? Did God really say you couldn't eat of the truth of the garden? He was causing her to give up the, the fixed point of truth into subjective truth. Well, that's not really what God went. It's up for me to define what God really meant there. That's the first lie. The second lie was that God was holding out on her. He doesn't want you to eat of the fruit because he knows if you eat of the fruit, you'll be like him. What is that? That is an unwillingness to see God as the higher power and authority in our life. That I ultimately am the higher power. That I ultimately get to decide morality. It's the same shift we see in our culture today. What happened was she ate it. She was deceived. And then Adam willfully took a bite of it anyway. So as much as you want to hate on Eve, he knew what was happening and he did it anyway. Why? Because we chose to be prideful. We chose to say to God, we know what's better than you. And we chose to look at the, the, the uh, barriers that God called good and right and say, we know better than God and life is outside of there. And what happened was that sin entered in and broke that relationship with God. And ultimately now they see themselves incorrectly. Where once they walked naked and unashamed before God, what does it say here in verse 7? They, they, they had a broken perspective and a broken reflection of who they were now. They now ran and hid. They sewed fig leaves. In their shame, they covered themselves. They no longer saw themselves as the perfect creation that God made them to be. They now see themselves in broken, fragmented reflections. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. See that? Ashamed, and they ran from the Creator 
rather than running to him for help. But the Lord God called to the man, why are you hiding? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And this brings us to our third (coughs) truth here this morning, that deviation from God's design leads to pain. There is a difficult reality around this conversation that that many are not talking about and that this this piece of this conversation could be heard through the wrong lens and through the wrong ears. What I mean by this is regardless of what it is, whether it is our sexual identity, whether it is anger, whether it is rage, it doesn't matter what sin you put in here. Anytime we step out of what God has called good and right, it will lead to pain for us. We said this in week one, that God put boundaries in our life not to harm us, but to protect us because God knows the reality of sin and he knows the destruction of it. And so when God God says no, it is ultimately for our good. And that is also true when God says no to acting on the inner desires in our body to to be something or to to, uh, express ourselves as something other than he created us to be. It is not because God hates transgendered individuals. It's because God knows the destruction that those decisions bring because it is outside of what he has called good and right. Does that make sense? And so when God is saying no to us, it's not because he's against our joy. It's not because he's against us expressing ourselves. It's because he knows that sin has tainted how we see ourselves. It has tainted how we see him. And he would be unkind, unloving, unfair, and unjust to let us just have it. And let me take that back. He would be fair in letting us have it, but he is not fair. He is kind and merciful and gracious, which is far better than fair. So how, so how do we respond? It's a lot of information. I appreciate you hanging on with me this morning. How do we respond as followers of Jesus? How do we interact with this? Here's the danger of a conversation like this, and it's one of the, what I said from the beginning. It's one of the hesitations I've had in having this conversation from the beginning, is that we would take these truths, and I hope you hold to these truths, but we would take these truths and begin to weaponize them against people who really need to be delivered from them. And here's my plea to us. These truths and all truth must be an anchor for us, not a weapon. God has given you the pillar of his word. We have given you this message that you could know truth for yourself so that if you, in, you come in contact with somebody who is wrestling with these things, you can stand there and say, hey, we have a fixed point and his name is Jesus and he's given us his word in which we can guide our life because we have said clearly that our feelings are terrible fixed points to determine our life decisions by, especially One's as significant as sexuality and identity that have long-term, lifelong ramifications to those decisions. There is a phenomenon in our culture called RO, uh, I got the acronym wrong, but Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria. What it is is basically um, because this is such a big cultural wave uh, for us right now that there is such immense pressure culturally on the young kids and the teenagers specifically to do this as perhaps a social fad. Um, that one of the big reasons is that, listen, we all know how awkward and insecure we were at 12, 13, and 14. Okay, Like, let's be honest. We were all awkward. If you weren't, you just didn't know it. If somebody came along to somebody two decades ago who was a, a tomboy, as we would culturally call them, we would have just said, you're a girl who's really good at sports. Good for you. That's awesome. That would, have, that would have been it. That would have been the end of the conversation. There would have been no pressure on that child to be anything other than a girl who's really, really good at sports and likes monster trucks and likes dirt bikes. And listen, this is so key. I didn't say this earlier, but this is key. 
Our cultural norms do not determine gender identity. Stereotypes do not determine determine gender identity. If you have a boy that is sweet and sensitive, there is a cultural gender stereotype that exists, but it does not determine or give a sexual identity. It just means he has a heart, and you should probably learn from him. Okay? But that's not the message our kids are hearing. The message our kids are hearing is if you're a girl who likes trucks, you must be born in the wrong body. Listen, they are 12, they are lost, they are confused, and they need truth, and they need hope, and they need love, and they need parents. Our posture in this is essential. Preston Sprinkle says it this way. Posture is crucial in this conversation. As a Christian, we already have many strikes against us. We're known for being anti-gay, judgmental, hypocritical, anti-trans, anti-target, anti-this, anti-that. Jesus was against many things, but somehow he had a reputation of being for people. Somehow Jesus was able to have a clear ethical stance to speak out clearly against sin and yet still draw to himself the very people who were found guilty by his words. That's the Jesus we follow. Consider these statistics. This was the largest survey ever done by the LGBTQ plus community. 83% of those in the LGBTQ plus community grew up in a church environment. 83%. 54% of them chose to leave the church after the age of 18, so after their parents probably made them stop going. But listen to this. This is important. Only 15% left the church because of the church's belief on marriage, sexuality, and gender. It was not the truth that was the problem. It was how we handled it. According to the survey, relational division from the LGBTQ plus community hasn't been primarily caused by what we believe, but by how we treat and talk to and about LGBTQ plus people. Do you catch that? My plea from week one is that if anything was going to be offensive, let it be the word of God itself, not the messenger. What these stats tell me is that we have not done that well. Now, to be fair, there are some who dislike our, the truth we hold according to God's word, and that's, that's, that is what it is. But the, what is this, 85%? No, yeah, you can go back to the next one. It's 15, go ahead, to the next screen. It, nope, the other way. There you go. <laughs> if, she's doing a great job. I am, I'm making her earn her keep today, so let's give her a round of applause. She's doing awesome. <laughs> If only 15% left because of the actual truth, that means 85% left because of how they were treated. Church, let, let that not be true for us as a church. So Jesus wasn't pro-tax collecting, and yet he gathered tax collectors around him. Jesus wasn't pro-adultery, and yet he defended a woman caught in adultery. Not her behavior, but her humanity. In love, we must defend the individual's personhood. We must defend their humanity. We must defend that they are made in the image of God. And we must treat them with equal rights and dignity, regardless of whether we believe with their lifestyle choices or not, regardless of what they say about Jesus, regardless of what they say about Christians. The love of Jesus treats individuals with dignity and humanity, not because they deserve it, but because God has given it to it, because we don't deserve it either. But God has given it, and Jesus has proved it. I have two final pleas for us, and then you can kick me off the stage. First plea is, is to the church, and it comes simply out of a quote uh, from Matt Chandler, a pastor in Texas. He says this, If the church must be anything, she must be a safe place for the gender-confused and the sexually broken. And 
And if she is not safe for that, then we do not believe our own message. She must be a safe place for the weary struggler. Church, would that be our posture? Whatever your preferences on the opinion might be, could we separate the ideology from the individual in our conversations? And here's what I mean. I think it's good and right as a follower of Jesus to be upset at the ideology that is being pushed on 12-year-olds. I think it is good and right to be bothered by that, and I think we should stand for that. Yet it cannot influence or impact negatively the individuals in our communities and our cultures who are wrestling with these things because they are not the ideology. They are the individual who has been caught in the ideology. They are not pushing an agenda. They are 13, 14, 15, and 16 being swept up. Let's treat them with the type of grace and compassion that a weary struggler deserves in the house of the Lord. And to those in here or listening to this online later who wrestle with gender dysphoria, my plea to you comes from the words of Jesus in John 10.10. 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. That sin and culture have told you that to be your truest self, to express yourself, you need to let these desires come out. What Jesus, your Savior and Creator, is pleading to you in John 10.10 10, is that those things are out of his good and right design. They are deceptions from the enemy to take from you what you are seeking, which is peace and satisfaction, to take from you the joy that you're after, to take from you life as God has designed it for you. And when Jesus tells you no, it is not because it is a, he is against you, but he knows that when you walk according to his design, you get a flourishing life. When we say no to sin, we get Jesus. And it leads ultimately to the life that is full and abundant and the one we've all been chasing all along, regardless of our natural bents, regardless of our natural desires. If we can lay down those feelings at the foot of the cross and pick up the heart of our Savior, he promises to give us the abundant life we've been chasing. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for your spirit and the ability to understand your word. God, we thank you for Jesus and the representation of love and grace and compassion that that was and is for us on earth. Lord, as we as a people navigate this cultural conversation, I pray that we would be learners, that we would be uh, kind, that we would be truthful and yet hopeful. God, I pray that as we walk into our homes and we walk into our workplaces this week. God, that we would handle ourselves in such a way that people who disagreed with us would still want to be near us because how we treat them. God, that's not possible in our flesh. Only you can do that. God, I also pray for the individual struggling in here this morning or wrestling with gender identity, wrestling with who they are. God, I pray that today there'd be this confidence that would wash over them that you have created them to be who you have created them to be, that you did not make a mistake with them, that you have a rescue for them from the desires that they are running from, that they would run and turn to you and find hope. If you're here today and, and you're wrestling with any of this, I don't want you to leave here uh, not knowing how much we love you, how much we care about you, and how much we want you to know the truth of Jesus. If you need to uh, come and talk to any one of us, you can do that. If you want to email me, my email is uh, mattp at bwater.org, and I'd love to have a conversation with you. Jesus, we love you. We praise you, and we thank you that in you there is hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.